this week on Life and Faith. It actually doesn't matter whether they've got schizophrenia or have an issue with their kidneys or whatever's going on in their life and whatever experiences they may have had, they've got something to give. And that changes people at a fundamental level. On any count, Paul is one of the most significant human beings who ever lived. It's a mystery even in science, so why wouldn't people be open to other mysteries? In some ways, the drive is even stronger in people that have had difficult childhoods. I'd recommend it to anybody. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Justine Toe. Now, plenty of us at CPX wear different hats in our lives, but probably not as many as Jaden Batty. Now, Jaden works a couple of days for CPX, keeping us in touch with schools. He also works for another company in marketing, and he teaches saxophone to school kids on top of postgraduate study. Seems to have a lot of energy. He's also a budding journalist, and last month, Jaden wrote an article in the ABC that, judging by its popularity, must have struck a nerve. Its headline, get this, I live with 28 other men and my wife. The power of connection changed everything for me. Since June 2020, Jaden and his wife, Michaela have made their home in a place called Hamer Court in Melbourne's Inner East. It's an affordable housing initiative run by the group Servants Community Housing. Now, the obvious question, what's it like for a married couple in their mid-twenties to live with a bunch of mostly older men navigating often challenging issues? Now, I'm here with Justine Toro. Justine, you caught up with Jaden and Michaela to find out. Yeah, and I thought it was going to be a good story, and it really was. So I was really <laughs> glad to hear about Jaden's story and Mikhail's as well, and how they got to this point. And what really struck me was that a lot of us can recognise that experience of soul searching, right? Once the pandemic hit, we were alone in our homes, couldn't go out. A lot of soul searching going on in That's the last right. few years. Yes, who am I? What am I doing with my life? What, what, what? What is the meaning of all of this? And that was also true for Jaden and Michaela as well. And in some ways that kind of kicks them off on this journey or is the catalyst for this part of their journey. So I began by asking them to tell me about their life before they moved into Hamer Court. Here's what they said. So we got married in February 20... I should know this because today's our wedding anniversary. In February 20... 19. 19. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) And we'd been married for about 13... 14 months before the pandemic really swung into full tilt um, for both of us who we were living in a fairly affluent area and we were surrounded by neighbours who owned their own homes in a beautiful neighbourhood that is in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. And I think one thing that was on my mind through that was that there was this growing dissatisfaction with the individualism in the way that we lived in that it wasn't that we didn't care about other people and it wasn't that we didn't connect with other people but that the style of the way we lived wasn't primarily concerned with um, living in community first and finding ourselves in community it was focused on what's our life together at home and then understanding community and even though I maybe couldn't articulate it for me, at least, there was just a sense of dissatisfaction, though maybe there was an invitation for something more. We had very busy 
structured lives, always doing something after work, both working full time. And when that all stopped, it felt like a time of reflection being like, what is my purpose? Like, what am I doing? What does this mean now that all of these things that make up who I am and like we're heavily involved in the arts and all of the arts industry shutting down and all of these things that make me who I am and not being able to do them, what does that look like for me and who I am? And um, I guess that was really a big part of kind of the consideration of doing what we're doing now. What they're doing now is living alongside 28 men. Now, it's worth saying that initially, Makayla was dead against this idea. One of the interesting things about us moving into servants was that um, Jaden mentioned it just after we got married and I said, absolutely not not going to happen. Then, um, so with the house managers, we'll have relief house managers come in so that we'll go away on holiday and someone else will look after the house in that time. And um, we were invited to do that for some friends of ours that were house managing at the time. And we were just there for a week. And by the end of that weekend, we got home and I said, Ah, Jaden, you know what? I think if Amanda's ever looking for some house managers in the future, I think I would be keen. Um, And it was just getting in there and actually getting to know the residents and, you know, realising that there are all these stereotypes about what living in community housing looks like and I guess the stereotypes of people that are in there. And it can just be so varied. You can have people that have worked their entire lives and have lost their jobs or come out of unfortunate situations and you can have people that have been in prison but knowing the people at a personal level really changes your perspective on the need for that and for the sense of community and to know them personally. Now before we go on some details community housing is often a combination of private rooms and shared facilities like a kitchen or living spaces and so on. It all depends on the particular property. At Hamer Court, everyone has their own bedroom and bathroom, which makes me really happy, I have to say. (laughs) It's almost like a share house, but one where the residents face a variety of challenges every day and where live-in managers like Jaden and Makayla are there to ensure that everyone can feel safe and comfortable. Looking at community rooming houses, they're there for a particular purpose and part of that purpose is about supporting people who are on low incomes or those who are at risk of homelessness. And that is all very good and well, but of course, homelessness isn't just an isolated issue. And many people who experience homelessness also may struggle with acute mental illness, or they might have an experience of trauma, or they may have been in prison, or have um, experienced domestic violence, or, you know, there's so many other life factors that are considerations why someone might find themselves or choose to be homeless. And so a community rooming house is a space that provides a safe at its best, um, stable and long-term accommodation options. So when we came to move into um, Hamer Court, which is the name of the building where we live, it's it's a little bit different from just living with friends in the sense that you walk into a space that is loaded with complexity and nuance for every individual person. And um, you just, you don't quite know what that experience is going to be like on the day to day. So yeah, can you give us a sense of what a typical day looks like, you know, if such a thing exists, Mm. because you're, as you've already alluded to, you're dealing with complex mental health issues, and perhaps um, everyone's personal stories, which can be wildly different. How do you juggle the day? And what does a day look like? I think something that is true for, for both of us. So we both work full time outside of the role as a living house manager. So we 
I guess we wouldn't necessarily see our role as a house manager as like it's not a full-time job, but it's a it's a vocation or a style of living that we've um, fallen in love with. And so um, in the mornings we would get up and we would go to work um, and then we'll come back in the afternoons or obviously during the pandemic we're working from home, which is a little bit more complex when you live with 28 people. And so I would phrase the way that we live a typical day is in just doing life alongside the people that you live with. And so just as you interact with people in your family as you're making breakfast or you're um, getting ready for work or getting ready for school and you see people around the dining table, around the TV as you come home, it's the same for us. When I get up in the morning and, and spend some time reading outside in the mornings usually, there'll be some of the residents hanging out or emerging from their days and you're, you start the day together saying good day, asking how you're feeling, complaining about, you know, how the wind last night kept you all up or about how it was really, really hot and so it was hard to sleep. And it's the same when you get home from work. People are sitting around watching a movie or playing a board game or um, they're coming home from work sometimes as well. And that's, I guess, the normal rhythms. Then there's some more unusual rhythms, which is that the normal day-to-day life is punctuated with moments of deep complexity. And those are the unexpected parts that you can't predict or plan for. And that might be someone having a psychotic episode or someone um, has experienced a traumatic moment in their life or someone has experienced something really positive and they can't wait to share that with you. And that's really unpredictable and could like look like so many different things. And I think the beautiful part about doing that kind of living together day by day, seeing there's, we've got one particular resident that sits out the front and um, says good morning to all the neighbours and just touching base with them constantly means that these are often people who would live quite isolated um, mm. lives and particularly those with acute mental illness, you're able to kind of notice and pick up on when things might not be going quite right for them and let the people that are supporting them in that professional health capacity know that and they're able to intervene earlier, which prevents them from having really severe episodes which take longer to recover from. Yeah, you've painted a really powerful picture of being present, right, and noticing and looking after people as individuals. Um, It's a beautiful picture, but one that I'm also um, seeing comes with quite a mental load as well, right, because you're living your own life, you're working full time, you are a married couple as well, and you're sort of keeping an eye on and caring for and living in community with people with quite complex uh, difficulties. That is... A huge thing, yeah? It must be quite taxing sometimes, but also very enriching, but also very taxing. (laughs) Yeah, it's both. I often think that one of the most rewarding things about it is, in a relationship sense for Makayla and I, is that um, Makayla is excellent in a crisis. And so one thing that I love is getting to live alongside Makayla in a space where I get to see her constantly operate at her best and excel in situations that I just think, man, like, yeah, this is the woman that I married and that's pretty cool. Um, how does Makayla swing into action? Um, Tell us what she does. Makayla is incredibly calm and in a moment where let's say um, there's been a moment of violence or of aggression or uh, a resident is feeling um, overwhelmed by emotions or there might be a medical emergency, um, I have a moment where I freak out (laughs) 
or where I um, can feel the emotion of the moment really, really powerfully. And, and I think that's a, a gift as well. Um, but Makayla has the capacity to step in and just rationalize the situation and say, okay, this is what we need to do. But also to be able to treat residents with respect and dignity in a moment where if they were in the general public or approached by someone who didn't know them, they might be treated with disdain. One example I can think of is, is I, th- I think of a resident who during the lockdown experienced a, a significant um, psychotic moment where they they lost a, a sense of control of, of their own body and, and um, didn't hurt anyone else or anything like that, but were quite violent towards themselves and were feeling overwhelmed by a sense of shame at their actions and um, didn't want any support or help. And I think the the gift that Makayla can bring in that moment is stepping in and helping to de-escalate a situation and treat someone with a sense of, um, you know, like, hey, I understand that this situation isn't easy right now, but I'm here with you. And I know that together we can help to figure out what the next steps are and that this situation doesn't change the way that people feel about you. We still respect you and you are still a worthwhile human being with dignity, you know, and yeah, I think, I think that's really powerful and important. Just the recognition of dignity between two people, even if the situation might not necessarily bring that to mind straight away. My like primary focus is to make sure people are safe and then to de-escalate it as quickly as possible because the conversations that come out of it, sometimes something significant has actually happened before all of this has got to this point and we're not going to know that if we just are reactive to what's happening in front of us. It's remembering that each of them are going through their own challenges and really truly meaning that we want to help them but an important part of that is calming them down to a point to know that that's not a rational thought and that oh okay I understand that that might not be um, a good thing to do so let's try it a different way. I think really important in that is that sense that our role both relationally and in in the job that we do here is not necessarily to fix people Mm. and that we're here to live life alongside people and to be present with them most of the residents who live with us are older than us and have vastly different life experiences than us and they know so much. And for us to walk in pretending that we knew better in every single situation wouldn't be to respect, um, yeah, I guess their own dignity and their own experience and their own agency. And so for us, we see like our model works because our focus is on being present and on creating a a community where there's a sense of love and belonging first and foremost. And it's in the space of strong relationship that people are able to flourish. And in the moments when they don't, they know that there's people who have got their backs and who will champion them on and who will not judge them no matter what's going to go on. What I'm hearing is that it's not just your relationship with the resident, but it's also their relationship with each other. Oh my goodness, yes. If you think about it, it's quite a combustible, it can be a combustible situation because everyone has different kind of profiles, everyone has different struggles, and then they might get triggered by each other, and then, but they also might have ways of helping to settle each other as well. And you just trying to ride the wave of that. Yeah, like... This is one really short example, but we have a resident who's in his 30s and a resident who's in his 50s and both of them experience bipolar and one of them had been off medications for many years and experienced a significant 
episode where they um, were confused and really confronted and didn't know what to do and didn't understand all the medications and how to deal with them or what else they might be able to do in their life to help them manage their um, their condition. And the older resident would walk with the younger resident to the chemist every day and help them see their doctor and go for walks together and they would cook together and they'd sit together and eat meals together. And there's this beautiful, natural, almost, it's almost paternal, but it's almost brotherly, like someone is able to say, I've walked a path before you and I get it and I can't tell you how to live your life, but you're welcome to walk in my footsteps and walk it with me as I experience the same challenges as you and that might help to make it easier. It's not just us doing community with the residents, it's the residents doing community with each other and it's beautiful to see um, people know and have an understanding of who each person is as a person to recognize uh, they might have responded to me in that way because of um, how they're feeling today. It's not necessarily that I've done something wrong and they're able to recognize and respond in a better way than perhaps they would have had the situation just happened to it with a stranger because they're so deeply intimate with each other person in the house that they, I guess, have empathy for them um, and the situations that they're going through, even if um, it's not identical to theirs. I think our residents for me are the people that I recognise most in life who embody that sense of people who have been forgiven much, forgive much. And I see our residents deal with such complex, nuanced circumstances and they handle them with such forgiveness. And mm. They get it. Grace. Mean- yeah, they get it. Like they mm. really, they really get it. And there's such little judgment. Sure, there's moments of frustration or anger or, you know, small arguments that break out just like siblings fight. But in the long term, like you might see a new resident move in who has really complex circumstances and they might get on everyone's nerves for two weeks. But three months later, they've found a place where they feel like they have family because every other resident in the house understands what it feels like to be mistreated and to be misunderstood. And so they make an effort to understand. You're listening to Life and Faith from CPX and we're hearing Justine's interview with Jaden and Michaela Batty, who live in a share house of sorts, along with 28 men. It's a rich, beautiful picture of community, but did you catch when they moved in, in June 2020, right before one of the longest lockdowns in the world? That's where the conversation goes next. Let me ask you about your experience, especially because I know that you moved in was it June 2020? So right before 111 days of lockdown in Melbourne. And then last year, 2021, there was another 77 (laughs) days over winter. So many of these men that you're living with already have challenges of social isolation. What does lockdown add to that? What was life like in that time? There are many, like, again, added complexities to that. Like, these are people that are already isolated and so lockdown in one sense didn't change too much for them. But the thing that it did force them into was becoming friends with the people around them, that the people that they were going to see every day were the people that were in home with them. And so really investing into those relationships. Um, But for other residents, not being able to do their regular rhythms um, and routines added irritability and so it was overcoming all of those challenges as well. One of our residents has schizophrenia and is able to manage the voices in his head in part through medical support but also partly through really long walks and the exercise enables them to 
process what's going on in their own mind. And when they were restricted to an hour a day of exercise, they just weren't allowed Mm. to be out in the sunshine and the natural light. And they would walk to the beach often and suddenly they couldn't. And that was confronting for them and confusing. And the other thing that was really challenging for a number of our residents was a lot of them have been doing certain things a certain way for a long period of time. And obviously for um, us moving to online shopping and things like that was a really easy um, experience. But for some of these guys who don't have phones, don't have email addresses, um, I remember one was trying to get a new SIM card sorted but couldn't work out how to book an appointment with Telstra because he couldn't get go into the store because it was closed. There wasn't actually anyone there to see him if he did show up and all of these added complexities that might not have affected the majority of us that were really impactful. And one mm. resident I remember has Asperger's and struggles to understand facial cues or, or to understand what people are saying or what people mean when they're saying something. And when people are wearing masks, he just cannot read their faces at all. And so he spends most of his conversations really confused because even his caseworkers and his disability support workers, when they visit him, they had to be in full PPE or they'd be online. And he didn't understand how to work a computer properly. And even when they were online, they were still wearing masks because they were in an office somewhere where they had to wear masks. And he just felt confused all the time. And that's really confronting as well. Now, Simon, hearing Jaden and Michaela say this, it struck me that even though you could say Hamer Court offers affordable housing for people on low incomes, in some ways that is the least interesting description of what actually goes on there. Jaden and Michaela are talking about living life deeply with people and seeing, in this case, their housemates' struggles with lockdown up close. And in doing so, they're trying to help each other so that everyone can thrive. So I then asked Jaden to tell us about Servants, the group behind Hamer Court. Our mission statement as an organisation doesn't actually say anything about housing. So our mission statement is creating communities where respect, dignity, hope and opportunity are nurtured. And of course, what we do is housing, but why we do it is centred around that people need connection and require community to live a life well. And the community that we have formed here is not just the residents who need housing. It's actually the house managers and it's the other staff, but it's also the neighbours who have never spent any significant time with someone whose life is so vastly different from their own, but in coming to spend time with residents realise that they lack something in compassion or generosity in their life and they realise that they have the capacity to give something immensely powerful in their life that enriches their whole understanding of the community and their neighbourhood. And that's like we are situated in one of the wealthiest suburbs in one of the most livable cities in the world. But the people who lack a community aren't just those who are homeless. It's those who are at home behind a really big tall gate in a mansion. It sounds like you're talking about different kind of poverties, right? There's the, I guess, obvious poverty that when people don't have a house over their head or a job, but you're talking about a rich relational web of people kind of gathering around together. Absolutely. Um, so this is, Servants is actually an initiative of Hawthorne West Baptist Church. Can you tell me a bit about the links that exist between Servants and the church? In the 1980s, there was um, a boarding house in Hawthorne that was owned by the state government and they were going to shut it down. And a group of members from the local church saw that it was going to be shut down and worried that these 38 men who lived 
in that particular house might find themselves homeless. And they said to the government, how can you allow that to happen? And they basically came to an agreement where the government agreed to let um, the house stay open if the church agreed to manage it. And the members of the church said, we will on a few conditions. One is that we will have living house managers because we see the need for community and someone to maintain a safe environment. A second one is they made a demand that they had to provide meals to the residents. So their demand was we have to provide a higher quality service to the residents who live there than what was there before. And the meals were so central because they saw people getting around a table and eating together as an incredibly beautiful picture of unity and a way to build strong relationships. Over the years, Servants has grown and the kinds of people who are seeking out that kind of housing has really changed. So those institutions ceased to be in operation and the government hadn't provided another um, key way of housing people who might have been in institutions. There's been a really big increase in people with mental illnesses um, moving into housing and also an increase in domestic violence that's led to um, particularly women and children, but also to some degree men um, leaving domestic violence and, and needing safe housing. Throughout that time, the church has um, has continued to support servants. So even though now it's a separate organisation, it's not owned by the church, there's a really strong link. And that link is um, relational as well as operational. So they'll run monthly barbecues or there's um, one member of one of the local churches who every single week for the last I'm going to say maybe 12 years has been catching up for coffee with some of the residents at one of the houses. And so there's a deep investment in long-term relationship. And I guess that's the the heart of, of those churches um, and particularly of Hawthorne West um, carrying through. How does your faith individually as a couple, whatever, how does your faith shape how you live there? Mm-hmm. Is it hard to love your neighbour, as Jesus famously said, when you're having to de-escalate the situation. You have to de-escalate your neighbour and soothe them. Is it hard to love people? I would say yes and no. I don't have a starry-eyed view of homelessness that says it's all good and beautiful and easy and lovely and all you need to do is just get involved and everything will be easy. That's just not the reality. There are some days when residents get on your nerves or do things that are really hurtful or that make you question why you're investing in this community. But my understanding of the way that Jesus has called us to live our life is one where we dig deep and lean into the messy relationships. If I always kept difficult people at arm's length, then I never have to face the reality of my own impatience and the brokenness in my own heart. When you live with a group of people who test you and call out your BS and tell you when you're not loving them well, then you realise that you have to actually rely on God to be the patient, kind and loving person that everyone likes to think they are. And so for me, even though living with residents is in part about giving, I would be lying if I said there wasn't also a selfish element where I'd say that I need the messiness of that community just as much as any of the residents might because it's in the messiness of those relationships where I'm confronted with my own brokenness and forced to reconcile it and in exercising those muscles of forgiveness and patience and um, giving grace and learning from people and um, having your pride questioned and your ego dashed apart sometimes. <laughs> um, that's so necessary for the changes in my own heart. 
um, I won't become the man that I want to be and I won't live with the kind of character that I want to live with or that I think Jesus says that we can live with unless I'm in those kinds of relationships. What changes do you see in people as a result of living in this community, this family? How do people change? And I guess sometimes people don't change as well and that's fine. But when you do see change, what is that like? I think there's a really clear example of a resident who after, you know, years of of struggling alone got to a point that they realised that they had people that were looking after them. And so knowing that they were safe in that environment, that they were able to engage with supports that they hadn't previously engaged with before because there was a sense of no one really cares. Like, no one's going to look after me. I need to do this on my own. Um, And then to, you know, finally have a moment of, I guess, breakthrough and for them to recognise, oh, I'm really loved and I'm really cared about, maybe engaging with this will be a good thing and just complete change of personality from not engaging with the community to being able to go about their daily life without being frightened of the other people around them. It's such a small, it sounds small, but it's massive, right? Yeah, really, really small for the majority of us, but just huge for this particular person. Yeah. I remember one moment when someone who didn't live at the property came and visited the property and was quite aggressive and I had to de-escalate that situation. And a group of our residents, um, this was in our front car park, and a group of the residents just came and stood behind me and didn't say anything but just looked at this person who was being aggressive and they just stood there and had my back. That was, for me, just a really powerful moment, an example of the deep loyalty that exists amongst our residents. Um, I think most of our residents don't have many family members. Most of them don't have many friends outside of the houses until they come to the houses and start building those connections with the community around them. Um, I guess it comes back to the idea of being relied upon, but they've got someone to protect, someone to care for, someone to have their back and someone's back to have. And the inherent respect and dignity and equality of all people in that enables residents to find something within themselves that they didn't know that they could contribute to the world beforehand. But now it actually doesn't matter whether they've got schizophrenia or, um, you know, have an issue with their kidneys or whatever's going on in their life and whatever experiences they may have had, they've got something to give. And that changes people at a fundamental level. I had one last question for Jaden and Michaela. They're in their mid-20s, they're well-educated, working full-time. If not for the pandemic, people just like them would be travelling the world, getting married, living their own life. But what would Michaela and Jaden say to their peers to get them to consider living a more deeply connected life, whatever that ended up looking like? And just so you know, yes, there is a very noisy bird in Jaden's answer. My situation is, you know, particularly interesting. I moved countries by myself at 17 and kind of came into this whole new place without a community. And only in retrospect do I notice, but the damage of not having a community around me, regardless of that being where we are now, or even just friends and and people to support me in my day to day, you know, it, it put a lot of strain on me emotionally and mentally and not realizing or recognizing that that was why um, to now um, I was, I've been here for a few years now and having a good group of friends and family and, you know, living where we live now that I think Jaden will kind of testify to it that my whole personality and comfort 
level has changed and I'm like less on edge. I'm able to relax a bit more. And so I think doing life with other people is so important because you're not holding the weight yourself. You're not trying to keep it together on your own. You have people to, you know, reason and bounce ideas off. And that's really important because when you're doing it on your own, you're exactly that. You're on your own. You're in your own little tunnel and um, you don't have the insight or wisdom that the community around you has. Yeah, that's really beautiful, Makala. Um, also, I think people can search around the whole world and do search their whole lives looking for meaning. And some people find it and so many people don't. And I think so many people can even get to their deathbed and still be figuring out who am I and how do I fit into this world? I guess one way that people do that is by constantly trying to find new relationships, constantly trying to find new partners, constantly trying to find new people who can support them and tell them who they are. But when you're constantly searching for the new person to tell you who you are, you have no foundation and you're always only ever hearing a shallow level of someone who can reflect back to you what they see in you. Actually, I think right on our own backyards, in our own communities, in our neighbourhoods, in our families, there are messy, complex relationships that if we run away from them, then we're never forced to confront the important stuff. But when we lean into relationship in all of its complexity and nuance and messiness and rough around the edgesness. It's like everything that we're searching for all around the world is actually right here. And so for me, sure, I, I want to travel. I think that'd be fine. And there's, there's plenty of things that I want to do in my life, but the grounding of the self-discovery of why I'm here and what I can contribute to the world, I'm learning by leaning in rather than by running away. That's not to say that someone who travels the world is, is running away necessarily, but <laughs> I'm not dissing that life choice. <laughs> I think that's wonderful and exciting and cool. But I guess for me, there's something really special just by, by digging deep here. This has been Life and Faith from CPX with me, Simon Smart and Justine Toe. A big thanks to Jaden and Michaela, who were interviewed at very short notice. I will post Jaden's article along with the show notes. Now, I'm sure you can think of people who need to hear this episode. So don't delay. Send it to them now and leave us some feedback or a rating. It helps people discover our show. Next week. And in Sydney, police maintained their tight security net around the Hilton Hotel, the scene of the bombing atrocity, even though all 12 heads of state were safely in Bowral. Meanwhile, two of the victims of the bombing are still in the intensive care ward at Sydney Hospital.